Hi, and welcome to another episode of Mike on MedTech, a show on the MedTech Matters podcast channel. I'm Sean Fatsky, Editor-in-Chief of MPO. Joining me as always, Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm well, thank you, Sean, for asking. So uh, in this episode, we are going to look at a, uh, the FDA put out, you know, their their leading problems uh, for uh, medical device facility inspections last year, 2022. Uh, and we've done this before. We've looked at this list before. Uh, most recently, it was in 2020. Um, and, you know, essentially, Mike, the, the list is almost a carbon copy. You know, sure, the number of violations differ. Um, there's there's more in 2022, obviously, for good reason with the pandemic. But uh, and we, you know, a couple in a, a minor swap, but really, it's the same thing. So, you know, Mike, before I start, you know, banging my head against the wall in seeing this same list of violations year after year, perhaps you can run through the top reasons uh, for the 483s and warning letters. Yeah, great question, Sean. And as always, uh, thanks for the opportunity to have this uh, discussion on this very important topic with you and your audience. You're exactly right. We have spoken about this before. And as we'll talk about, uh, regrettably, um, history does tend to repeat itself because we seem to, to have the same problems over and over again, year after year and decade after decade. Uh, so let's talk about what the most common reasons why companies do get in trouble with the FDA, either a 483 observation or sometimes even a warning letter. Uh, the top three, uh, and perhaps this is no surprise to, to some of us in, our, in the audience, CAPAs, design controls, and complaints. CAPAs, design controls, and complaints collectively uh, made up about 35% of all of the 43 observations received in 2022. So a little over a third of all of the problems that uh, companies ran into. And we'll give examples of these as we continue, Sean. Uh, but we're uh, a little over a third were CAPAs, design controls, and complaints. The next three were purchasing controls, process validation, and medical device reports. And collectively, purchasing controls, process validation, and medical device reports, or MDRs, represented about 20% of all of the 43. So if you add the top six up, we're talking a little more than half, roughly about 55% of all of the problems that FDA cited companies with were CAPAs, design controls, complaints, purchasing controls, process validation, and medical device reports. And of course, rounding out the, the top 10 sh uh, list, Sean, just to complete the list were non-conforming products, production and process controls, acceptance activities, and quality audits. So bottom line, when you add all of those together, and I know that we're going through the numbers pretty quick, but we can provide references in the, in the information along with the, the podcast, the top 10 reasons that I just mentioned that companies get uh, in trouble with the FDA, either with a 43 observation or sometimes even a warning letter, they, that the top 10 make up 75%, three quarters of all of the problems that FDA cited in 2022. Um, and the intent of this discussion, Sean, and I think this is important for our audience to understand, 
the intent of our conversation here is not to criticize, not to bash either companies or the FDA, because uh, quite frankly, there's way too much of that, but rather to learn from these mistakes. Uh, one of the things I think you and I have talked about before, Sean, is, for example, CAPAs, which we'll talk more about in a moment, a corrective action, preventative action. Why is the emphasis put on correcting the problem and then uh, preventing the problem? Why don't we reverse our whole mindset? Why don't, in fact, we call it a PACA, a preventive action, corrective action, and take some of these examples that other companies have run into, have gotten into trouble with the FDA, and use those uh, prophylactically to ask, could the same or similar problems happen in our company? In other words, don't just wait for a problem to happen and then try to correct it and prevent it, but actually proactively ask yourself, could this problem happen? And then what can we do to Prevented. I know I went through an awful lot in a short time, Sean, and I'm sure you've got questions you want to dig into. So, what are your thoughts thus far? Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, as you as you said, I, I, I do want to avoid, you know, bashing anyone, but you know, it is it is frustrating to see see the same list, and you know, it it makes me wonder, you know, is this just is this because certain aspects are are tricky to get, or is this just you know, for lack of a better word, a little bit of laziness where, you know, the, the companies that are involved are uh, just not doing exactly what they should to the letter that they should be doing it. Um, you know, I know you don't like uh, absolutes, but in in this instance, you know, if, if the FDA is, is tagging them on a inspection, it seems to me it would be something that should be, e- I don't want to say easily, but should be relatively understandable to avoid. I couldn't agree more, Sean. And as we're going to see in some of the examples that we talk about in the next several minutes, um, I don't mean to be unkind, unkind, but some of the things that these companies get cited for are, in my opinion, not just as a regulatory consultant, but as a professional biomedical engineer, are simply boneheaded mistakes. And again, I, that might sound a little harsh or unkind to some people, but I can't think of a better word. Well, maybe I could, but maybe not a word for, you know, to, to share in, in a nice public audience like this. I can't think of a better word than boneheaded mistake. So let's, you know, start to continue to peel back this onion and talk about some of these examples. Yeah, absolutely. So, the, you know, let's start with the top of the list with Kappa. Um, you know, you mentioned examples. So I think that's the best way, to, you know, the best route is, is looking at a few examples of, of Kappa issues and then having, you know, hearing your suggestions for uh, avoiding those those concerns, those issues. Yeah, again, great question, Sean. So let's uh, start peeling back uh, the onion, and there's perhaps no better place to start than with Kappa. Kappa represented about 12%. Uh, So a little more than one out of 10 times the FDA found a problem in an inspection, it was CAPA related. Uh, So just as a reminder for our audience, CAPA is an acronym, C-A-P-A, Corrective Action, Preventative Action. In essence, the idea is it's a process uh, for correcting and preventing problems. With the operative, the, the emphasis in the word process, it's not about the form. It's about the process. And I would argue even further, not the mechanical process, but the thinking process that goes into correcting and preventing these problems. So the most common reasons why 
uh, companies got um, ran into problems in the area of Kappas were either the manufacturer did not document that they had procedures or they did not adequately capture their capita, their capita activities. In other words, they didn't document what they did as a result of the procedure. And in my opinion, Sean, as I said a moment ago, and I hope I don't want to over uh, overuse this phrase, but this is a boneheaded mistake. Remember the um, uh, the GMP adage: uh, if it wasn't documented, it didn't happen. So this sounds very basic, and in fact, it's required. But remember, a little more than one out of ten times FDA made a citation, it was because a manufacturer either did not document their CAPA procedures or did not adequately capture CAPA uh, activities. Now, again, to get into the weeds a little bit further, Sean, if they did not document that they followed their procedure, that's a pretty black and white kind of a thing. Right. But if they say that they did not adequately capture their their CAPA activities, the word adequately obviously is open to large interpretation. So one can quibble, uh, did you investigate the problem enough? Did you, uh, you know, and so on. But make sure at the very least that you document what you've done or if you have a problem that's reported and you determine that it's not worthy of pursuit, then document that you're not going to pursue it and here are the reasons why. Again, you know, one of my most common pieces of advice, Sean, when companies go to the FDA, either pre-submission as part of the regulatory process or post-submission, part of manufacturing, part of the quality process, is put yourself in the shoes of the reviewer or the FDA inspector. If they see that there was a problem uh, reported, but they don't see any evidence of an investigation, nor do they see any justification for why you decided not to make an investigation, then how do they know if you thought about this problem and you concluded that it wasn't pursuing or if it just simply fell through the, cr the cracks. So again, this is very basic advice to me, Sean, but it's amazing to me how many companies don't do this. One last thing that I want to mention quickly in the area of CAPAs, this is a recommendation that I give to a lot of companies. Um, it's not technically required in the quality system regulation in the QSR, but I think it should be. Make sure that you have in your QMS criteria to determine when a complaint gives rise to a kappa. Let me say that one more time. Make sure that you have criteria in as a specific detail as you can when you receive a complaint from a customer, physician, you know, whoever it is, under what circumstances um, should that go on to cause uh, a kappa and then under what circumstances should it not. So define those criteria and then periodically update those criteria, maybe once a year, twice a year, whatever is necessary, and use some of your past complaints to sort of test your uh, your your criteria. Remember, the, the QMS, Sean, in my opinion, should not be a static document. It should be a living, breathing document. It should be constantly changing and evolving and uh, and growing with with the with the company. Uh, and if I see a section of your Q, of a company's QMS, for example, that has not been touched or updated for the last pick a number, say five years, then without even reading that section, Sean. I can pretty much guarantee that there are problems in that section if right. it hasn't been touched or updated for that period of time. So 
Kappa, uh, a little more than one out of 10 times, uh, comp uh, FDA finds problems in our manufacturing inspections. It's specifically involved uh, in the area of Kappas, uh, including in the areas that I just mentioned. So, yeah, so um, it sounds, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like some, not all, but some of these are, you know, the company's going through the through the procedure properly. They're they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're getting a complaint. They're getting an uh, alerted to an issue, and they're not they're they're simply not documenting what their fix was. Um, like you said, if it's not documented, it, it's as if it didn't happen. Um, you know, which is which is more. Is is it is it's good to hear that you know they're they're making the fix and in, again in some cases they're they're doing the fix performing the right procedure, but to the FDA to to actually you know hey, forget about the FDA as you've told me before forget about the FDA what happens when the 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 lawyer comes in in a lawsuit and says what did you do to fix this and the company can't point to any documentation. You know, That's th a good point, Sean. And again, as I said at the beginning, and I mean this sincerely, the intent of this conversation is not to criticize or to bash, but to learn. So based on what you just said, let me make a further suggestion. If you find in your company, for whatever reasons, that a particular um, complaint or CAPA was not documented, then maybe consider opening a CAPA on that event. In other words, ask yourself the question in a CAPA or what I would call in this case a PACA, um, why was it not documented? Or in the case of adequacy, have, you know, take a look at it and was this adequately documented? Was this adequately investigated? Don't just wait for an FDA inspector to come in and find problems. This is actually the concept of the mock, mock audit, Sean. Uh, right. You know, if we were to go off on a tangent for just a quick moment, um, I spend a little bit of my time, not a lot, but some of my time helping companies improve their their quality management systems and so on. I don't really market myself as a as a mock auditor, but I do a little bit of that work. And when you have somebody come in and do an, uh, a, a mock audit, you want them to be absolutely brutal. You want them. You don't want them to come in and basically say, "Oh, you're all doing a wonderful job. Have a parade. Pat yourself on the back," because if that happens, and regrettably, Sean, I see that happen a lot. If that happens, you might be ticking the box on that form, uh, meeting the 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 letter of the law, if you will, but you are clearly not meeting the spirit of the law. You want somebody to be absolutely brutal, kind of like the clinical equivalent of a morbidity and mortality conference where the surgeons get into a room, they pull off the gloves and they literally duke it out. So there's another suggestion for our audience to consider, Sean. Great. All right. So let's uh, let's go to the second item on the list. And, and like Kappa's, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, design controls also accounted for about 12 percent uh, of the list. Um, you know, can you go through some uh, examples of these violations and again, you know, provide suggestions for them? Absolutely. So design controls in terms of frequency of, of problems is right up there with CAPAs. I said a moment ago, CAPAs represents about 12% of the problems that FDA finds. Design controls also uh, represents about 12% of what FDA finds. Now, obviously, design controls is a very, very broad subject. So I'm going to pick out just uh, some of the most important ones. So the most frequent reason why companies get in, in 
into trouble with FDA when it comes to design controls is with, uh, with design validation design validation. And essentially what that means is essentially demonstrating that your device conforms to the defined user need and its intended uses. I mean, can you think of a more basic, more boneheaded mistake than not to show that your device conforms to the defined user needs and intended use? That is the essence of the entire design control guidance that goes back to 1996, uh, 1997, I believe. Uh, and that's the most common reason why companies ran into problems. Additional reasons for uh, problems under the topic of design controls um, within design validation is risk management. There's obviously a close relationship between design validation and risk management. For example, not performing a risk analysis. 30 times FDA cited companies in 2022, 30 times for not performing a risk analysis. We're not talking about not performing an adequate risk analysis, because again, we can quibble on what ad adequate means. Okay, that's right. a different discussion. But we're talking about 30 times where they flat out did not perform a risk analysis. And this is the companies that actually got caught who the heck knows how many are companies out there that didn't provide pro um, um, perform a risk analysis that didn't get caught, right. <laughs> right? Again, I'm sorry if I'm being a little harsh, but to me, nobody that somebody that doesn't know such a basic thing, without I, I won't even say with all due respect, Sean, they shouldn't even be in this business. You know, that's just. I mean, maybe boneheaded is an overstatement for that. Not documenting that the results of the risk analysis, that's another common reason. So that goes back to the documentation uh, thing uh, that we talked about before. And you alluded to uh, the product liability consequences, Sean. And, you know, I'll remind my audience that I spend some of my time working in expert witness and medical device product liability cases. But can you imagine if uh, a company gets sued because somebody is harmed from their device and an expert witness like me comes in and shows, well, this company never even did a risk analysis? Does right. it take a JD from Harvard after your name to appreciate ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching? That's a problem. Just to round off this part of our discussion, Sean, some other quick examples of uh, problems that companies have run into under the category of design validation include things like lack of or at or inadequate procedures. Once again, you know, we've, we talked about procedures in the CAPA section, so this is another one in design validation, not validating software. Again, to me, validation, whether it's a piece of software or any other medical device, that's a no-brainer. You have to validate it. Not using production equivalent devices in validation studies. What's the point of validating your device that's not representative of what you're manufacturing or selling on the market? That, to me, is so basic engineering. I mean, you know, that's something that you probably should learn in your freshman year of engineering school, if not, you know, even before that. Not establishing acceptance criteria prior to validation. So what's the point of doing a validation if you don't even know what criteria you're going to use to decide if it passes the validation or not? Right. I wish I could say I was making these things up, Sean, but I'm not. These are right out of the FDA books. Not documenting the results of your uh, validations in your design history file. Okay, that's 
an administrative, a paperwork problem, but it's still a problem. Not conforming, uh, sorry, not confirming that the device conforms to defined user needs and intended uses. As I said before, this is such a, a basic point. This is the entire point of the whole design validation process. And yet these things happen over and over and over again. So finally, um, uh, the last thing that I'll mention in this section, and then feel free to drill in further, Sean, is combining your design validation with your design change process. If you want to make changes to your device while it's on the market, uh, for example, either in a letter to file or sometimes as a special 510K, you need to revalidate or update the validation based on whatever changes that you made in the design and the materials and uh, whatever it is. So these are just some of the most common reasons under the topic of design controls and some very specific examples, obviously without mentioning specific company names or devices, but I think I delivered enough information here to make it actionable to most people in this audience. Uh, would you agree, Sean, or what, what would you like to go into further? Yeah, no, actually, uh, no, the, the examples are great. Um, the one thing, I, the couple things I noticed, uh, number one is this, this really, while it is a regulatory issue, it really does become apparent how important these, these uh, citations are with regard to, you know, if there's a problem with the device. The device in five years, you know, after it's on the market and, and a lawyer goes back and looks at, you know, uh, inspections and finds, oh, yeah, you had 483s, you got a warning letter, you got and it's all tied to this device. And now my my client was injured from this device. You know, th I mean, that's just a pathway to to, you know, settlement and it's not going to be cheap. Um, the other thing is, obviously, as you as you, you know mentioned more of these, it's it's very apparent that they're at different levels of, um, I don't want to say importance, but uh, you know, significance to, to um, you know, safety and things like that. Does that, uh, does that determine whether or not a company gets a, a 43 or a warning letter? It certainly can be part of it. Uh, I think maybe a slightly different way to reframe your question, Sean, is under what circumstances would a FDA inspector come in to do an inspection? And most of the time, it's not because we have known problems. It's just your name happens to come up on the calendar and you're, you're the unlucky you know, one for, for the week. But there are situations, and this is what you were alluding to, I think, Sean, where there is a problem or there might be a problem with a device already out there on the market. And one of the things that FDA might do in that case and probably should do, and the company should definitely do this, is take a look at your manufacturing procedures to see, you know, are the devices that you're making still, do they conform to the to the original specs and, and have there been any deviations and so on? So those are the two times that um, typically FDA will come in either uh, based on the calendar, which is the more frequent one, or uh, if there's a known problem or a suspected problem, if people are becoming injured or god forbid you know uh killed uh if there are reports in the popular press on the tv news and so on that's when people start uh paying attention more okay um and now now uh jump to the third item uh that you mentioned which was uh complaint handling and that didn't quite 
uh, reached 12 percent. Actually, it was almost 11. It didn't even reach 11 percent, but still obviously a, a significant uh, number. Um, do you have ex examples of complaint handling uh, and again, tips for avoiding them? Yeah, great question, Sean. And just as an FYI for our audience, I actually teach a whole course. It's a it's a two day industry uh, short course on uh, complaint handling and post market surveillance. So uh, this is a topic that we could go into in obviously a lot more detail. But just starting out uh, with the basics, complaint uh, is a is a very mm, difficult term to define. There are multiple definitions, but one definition, and by the way, even within the regulation, there are at least three different definitions of the word complaint in the regulation. So one of the things that I recommend to companies do in the area of complaint handling is come up with your own definition of complaint based on your technology, your devices. You can kind of take a look at the definitions that are out there and kind of synthesize them down to one that fits you. But for the sake of our discussion today, Sean, a simple definition of a complaint is any written electronic or oral communication that alleges deficiencies related to the identity, quality, durability, um, a reliability, safety, effectiveness, or performance of a device after it's been released for distribution. Uh, so that's one definition, but again, the company should come up with their own definition. Most common examples that companies get in trouble with the FDA under the area of complaints and complaint handling, probably no surprise to, to you, Sean, uh, did not document their procedures. <laughs> this happened uh, nearly 140 times wow. in 2022 alone. And again, that's the ones that we know about. How many do we not know about? I have no idea. Did not maintain their complaint files. In other words, they did not keep them current. Complaints of device failures were not investigated. 24 times this happened where you got a complaint from a user, a clinician, a surgeon, a, 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 a patient, whatever it is, and you didn't even investigate it. What the heck is the point of, ha of getting a complaint? What the heck is the point of having an entire quality management system if you're not going to investigate the complaint? Now, if you investigate the complaint and it turns out that this is a trivial complaint, let me give you a quick example. Let's say somebody complains because they don't like the, the color of the housing of your device or there's a little <laughs> scratch you know on the on the housing of the device you're laughing Sean but but companies get these things you know you know as as complaints you can easily investigate that and simply dismiss it by saying this is purely cosmetic it does not impact safety efficacy performance of the device and here are the reasons why and document that that this was reported to us on such and such a day but our conclusion was that it was a cosmetic problem. It could not impact safety efficacy. I'm not talking about writing a 300 page PhD dissertation, Sean, but I'm just right. talking about, you know, maybe a couple of sentences, maybe a paragraph at the most uh, to show that this complaint was not worthy of investigation. In other words, covering your, you know what, but to have, you know, situations where complaints of device failures were not investigated, that's a problem. And I'm going to assume, for the sake of our discussion, 
because FDA uh, specifically categorized these as complaints of device failures, these were maybe not cosmetic complaints. So if you have a device failure that was not investigated, that to me, Sean, seems to be a problem. A couple of other examples to round out this list and then happy to dig into it in more detail if you'd like. Complaints were not reviewed and evaluated to determine if an investigation was necessary or they lacked the rationale for not conducting an investigation. I just gave you an example in the in the previous one. Provide a few sentences as to where as to why a you know full formal investigation is not necessary, because you know it was a cosmetic problem or or whatever it was. But to, but to not do that at all, I think is uh, unprofessional to say the least. Right. Last two complaints were deemed reportable that were not properly investigated. I'll say that one more time. Complaints that were deemed reportable, in other words, important enough that they could not simply be dismissed or handled internally. They had to be reported, but they were not properly investigated. Now, admittedly, the word properly is right up there with adequately, right? It's very touchy-feely. We could, you know, quibble about, you know, um, whether it was properly or adequately investigated, but that's a problem. And finally, complaint records did not contain all of the required information. And some of the information is very, very basic, like name, date, you know, circumstances and so on. One of the things I'll share real quick, Sean, and then I'd love to hear your further thoughts on this. Early in my career, when I worked as an R&D engineer, uh, part of my time was spent doing what we call failure mode recreation. In other words, a, a device, a, a problem was reported with a device in the field, and it was our job to try to recreate the circumstances to determine what led to that particular problem. Was it a design issue, a manufacturing issue, a user issue, what have you? I can tell you that the vast majority of times, we did not have enough information that was reported back to us that was collected by the company to adequately recreate the circumstances that led to that particular problem or failure. So we had to make a lot of guesses. And when I went back to our complaint handling people, I would ask them a whole bunch of questions, most of which they could not answer because they did not ask the right questions to their customer when the complaint was actually um, uh, uh, made to them. Make sure that you train your people that are receiving these calls or however you're receiving the information on a website or in a form or something like that to collect as much possible information and very, very specific information you can. Regrettably, Sean, most of the time when a device fails, like for example, a simple device, if it breaks, they simply just, you know, set it aside and take another one. And really, you know, nothing much more happens. It's only in circumstances where you have a very, very, very significant adverse event or SAE, like somebody has a heart attack or a stroke or they die. That's when you get a lot of information about the circumstances, but it's incumbent on the company to try to collect as much information as they can as soon after the event as you can, because if you wait three months or six months to go back to the people in the cath lab or the OR or whatever this happened, first of all, you might not, they might not even be there anymore. You might not be able to reach them. And even if you do reach them, they've done, you know, a thousand cases since then. So it's a probably don't remember the details. Again, all of this, Sean, it seems to me is very, very common um, 
uh, advice. And, you know, it is right. It's basic common sense. But unfortunately, Sean, maybe common sense is not as uh, is not as common as we think. Thoughts <laughs> on any of that? So, uh, you know, I, I know I've brought this up before and this always happens whenever aesthetics are, are brought up or or color specifically. But as I've told you before, I do have color blindness, specifically uh, more red green. So, you know, that's the other thing to keep in mind is is while it may come across as a cosmetic problem. But if you have, let's just say, a, a device that and, and most common, it's power, you know, a power indicator light is red and green. It turns red, green when it's ready and it's red when it's charging. Well, if it's the same light, I'm I'm out of luck. I cannot tell. I have to ask other people. So while it may sound cosmetic, and obviously if you're talking about the, the casing for, for a handheld device, you know, it's, I don't like blue. I like yellow. That's a different story. But I'm telling you about specifically, you know, don't it, it and I'm not saying you did this, but uh uh you know, someone who's receiving a complaint should not automatically dismiss it as aesthetic again. And, and you kind of said this, at least give it, you know, some thought, make the acknowledgement that it was it was considered, and even if it's just a few sentences, you know, yeah, this was the shell of the. It has absolutely zero impact on use. It was simply the color we picked. It could have been any other color. Had no impact. Um, you know that that's fine. But uh, you know something that may sound cosmetic may not be. Just so it is worth that extra minute to to think about or or you know give it that that fair attention, um, you know, if it is a, a question. Excellent example, Sean. I could not agree with you more. And thank you for using yourself as a little bit of a case study there. Let me dig into that a tiny bit further. So you're exactly right. Uh, 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 um, because somebody doesn't like the color, it could be a cosmetic complaint, but it could, as you just illustrated, uh, uh, raise usability concerns. Right. So, if a, somebody calls you up and says, I don't like the color of your device, immediately your follow-up question should be, what specifically do you not like the color? If they say to you, well, I don't like this particular shade of blue or something like that. Okay, fine. That's, you know, that's, that's a, a cosmetic complaint. Right. But if they say to me, well, you've changed the font color and because of the background color, it's now difficult to distinguish it's difficult to read that's a usability issue right. that could lead to safety and efficacy issues regarding your device and that is something that definitely should be investigated so thank you for reminding me sean in my examples i'm trying to be as specific as i can here without mentioning specific companies or devices which i often like to do anyway but um but not to overgeneralize. so that color example is a is a terrific one thank you sure happy i'm, I'm always happy to lend my uh, my color blindness to the discussion <laughs> <laughs> um so so and and you know, as as I said uh, when I was doing the introduction, that we we kind of did this list back in 2020, and unfortunately, it does sound like it's it's a lot of the same issues. Um, and I, th after hearing you go through them in more detail, I think I already know the answer to this. But you know, are these really the same mistakes we had in 2020? I mean, 2020 comes with that bundled in of, you know, obviously in the, in the, the, the heart of the pandemic, uh, you know, 
I don't, I think the numbers were lower simply because the number of inspections and things like that, you know, there's other reasons, but are these the same problems or are companies just making the same, you know, boneheaded mistakes uh, over and over? Yeah, it's a terrific question, Sean. And I wish I could say, I really wish, I, I truly mean this, that I can say that our industry is learning from its mistakes uh, and getting better. And, you know, the glass is half half full rather than half empty. I really wish I could say that. Unfortunately, I see no evidence to support that kind of a conclusion, none whatsoever. In fact, I, I we talked in some detail in our discussion today about the most common reasons why companies get in trouble. And just as a reminder, I said the top three reasons were CAPA's design controls and complaints, which collectively represent uh, a little over a third of all of the times that FDA has found problems with, with companies. Not only was that tr uh, true in the last calendar year, 2022, the same trend, exactly the same, was true for the last 13 years. Wow. 13 years, approximately one-third of all of the reasons why companies get in trouble with FDA and manufacturing um, uh, 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 inspections were those three areas, CAPAs, design controls, and complaints. And in fact, that pattern goes back for the last 16 out of the 17 years. So wow. we're approaching now two decades where we've been making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Um, you know, it's kind of reminds me, Sean, of Einstein's definition of insanity. You know, doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result. We as an industry, and again, I take no pleasure, no pride in saying about this about our, our, our industry, because I'm very proud of our industry. But we can't just talk about the things that we do well. We have to also be able to talk about the things that we don't do so well, and that we haven't been doing a well for, for a while now, in order to improve them, in order to ultimately make our industry and indeed the world a better place. And so, Again, as I said you know, at the beginning and a couple of times, my intention here is not to blame or to bash, but to learn. And this is why I like to put the emphasis on preventive action as opposed to corrective action. You know, not to get too philosophical, Sean, here, but you've probably heard of the adage, practice makes perfect. Well, it's actually not true. Practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. <laughs> If we continue to practice over and over and doing the same mistakes, we will continue to get better and better making the same mistakes. So the emphasis here has to be not making these mistakes and then practice not making them. I, I, I don't think I'm doing a very good job of explaining what I mean, Sean, but I, but I hope you get the message. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, um, you know, but that that kind of leads me into to my to my last my last question, which is you know always the the most important takeaways before we wrap up. But before I ask that of you, you know, it, it just it, it makes me want to just say, you know, hey, I, I don't know how many remember the movie, the Jim Carrey movie, Liar Liar, where you know he's a lawyer, he can't lie. His client calls up, his secretary tells him, hey, so and so got arrested again. He's he's uh, you know, he's on the phone. He's uh, you know, he's in jail. 
you know, he wants your your advice. And Jim Carrey grabs the phone and says, stop breaking the law, a-hole. And, you know, it's, it's almost like that's what that's my best. That's my takeaway from this. Stop making the boneheaded mistakes. Use this. Look at this list. The FDA puts out a list. Use that list. Go through your processes. Talk to your regulatory. Talk to your quality. Talk to your, you know, everyone. It, this has got to be everyone. It's not just certain departments. This is everyone's got to be involved and and go through and see if you have the as, as suggested at the beginning do it do a kappa on whether or not you're you've you know got all these things in place so mike take it away give us your your takeaways now that i've gone off on my soapbox <laughs> well first of all sean i love your jim carrey uh uh metaphor i'm a big jim carrey fan but i don't remember seeing that particular movie so i'm gonna have to watch that one uh okay. again but I, I i love the comparison um and i love how you're you know reiterating my sort of philosophy of kappa uh, sorry uh, paca rather than than kappa and you may remember sean a few years ago the when we talked i think we did a few podcasts on this the the uh famous or the infamous uh ble- uh doc uh not netflix documentary the bleeding edge yep. you know one of the suggestions i made there for all companies across the board was take a look at the examples that led to those problems and ask could the same or similar kinds of problems happen in your company? That would be another example of, you know, being proactive as opposed to reactive. But just to come back to your to your question, Sean, and to wrap this up, in addition to what you just mentioned, some of the, what I think are some of the important uh, takeaways is obviously remember the statistics that I shared and the most common reasons. Here's another statistic to throw out for the audience, Sean. Of the 483s that were offered by FDA last year in 2022, companies averaged about three and a half clauses per uh, that were cited per inspection. Uh, so they, they basically uh, uh, averaged about three and a half problems per inspection. Uh, so if you walk out of an FDA inspection with, you know, with few or, or zero problems, you're doing quite well. But even in those cases, don't get too excited because did you not have any problems or do you have any problems? And for whatever reasons, they just didn't find it. You know, right. the late, great Carl Sagan said the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So <laughs> remember, when you do your 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 mock audit and you bring somebody in hopefully you don't use somebody from in, internal in your company to do that because in my opinion that defeats the whole purpose even if you're in a large company where you have people that could do that i still think it's better to have somebody from the outside you want them to be absolutely brutal uh when i do uh um uh, reviews whether it's a regulatory review or a quality review i want an ironclad consulting agreement in other words, I want an agreement with the company that that basically says no matter what I say to them, they're going to pay me. Because as I said earlier, Sean, and I mean this sincerely, if somebody comes in and just you know says, "Oh, you're doing a wonderful job," you know, have a parade, pat yourself on the back, you might be ticking the regulatory or the quality requirement, you know, meeting the the letter of the law, but certainly not the spirit of the law. A couple right. of other things just to wrap this up. Obviously, manufacturers should count on FDA audit frequency to be more predictable and more frequently more frequently now that we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic and things are, you know, kind of returning back to normal, whatever that means. And um, because of the what we talked about today, FDA, I think, is going to be very, very focused uh, on those top 
reasons why companies were uh, were, were cited, you know, in the past. Um, specifically, um, Kappa's design controls and complaints; those are the top three. But all of these others in the top ten as well. So we can't use COVID as an excuse anymore. Uh, at least not when it comes to uh, inspections. Um, and finally, and I mentioned this a moment ago, but I think it bears worth repeating, you know, as they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Think PACA, not Kappa. Go through the examples that we shared, Sean and I talked about today. Ask yourself, could these problems happen to us? Could similar problems happen to us? If the answer is yes, then what can we do to try to mitigate them? If the answer is no, then my question is, are you sure? Why, how do you know that these problems cannot happy be, be, happen to you? Remember my, the old Ronald Reagan mantra, trust but verify. You tell me that this problem can't happen to you? Okay, fine, prove it. Why can, that, why can this problem not happen to you? Uh, and finally, last and certainly not least, Sean, don't assume that if you're meeting the quality system regulation, the QSR requirements, your QMS is working. I see countless examples where a company meets all the, the, the QSR requirements, they tick all the boxes, but their quality management system is not working. Remember the, um, the uh, clinical adage I used to share with my medical students back in the day, the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. We designed the medical device perfectly, but the patient died anyway. We did all that FDA asked us to do, and yet the patient died anyway. Unfortunately, these problems happen more frequently than some people would like to think. And finally, last and certainly not least, Sean, uh, when you get, just as a reminder, we've talked about this before, when you get a 510K, a de novo, a PMA, when you get a, a, a CE mark, when you, when you pass uh, a manufacturing inspection, that's the academic equivalent of being a C student. That just means that you're passing. That doesn't mean that you're making a safe and effective device. It certainly doesn't mean that you're making a good device, at least not necessarily. I think our goal as an industry not just should not should not just be compliance, passing. It should be better than that. And I think that is achievable in the real world, but maybe I'm just a little naive. So it seems to me. Any anything that I missed, Sean, that you would add to that list, or would you or do you want to wrap this up? No, I think I, I think I already gave mine at the, at the start before your takeaways. So I think I'm all all set. But uh, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for this episode. I'd like to thank, as always, Mike Drews, president of Vascular Sciences, for all of his insights and and great examples in this case. Um, and I'd like to thank you, the listener, for for tuning in. So until next time, this has been Sean Fenske, editor in chief of MPO, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>